The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and then watching Amazon's upcoming Wheel of Time TV show. I am Caleb Wimble, and with me are my co-hosts, Katie Jarvis and Keely Frank. Hello. Dan is stuck in a work meeting today, uh, though he may join us later in the episode if that wraps up in time. We will see. You can find us at Wattcast.net and support the show at Patreon.com slash Wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 helps. Join us on Patreon at the $5 Tarvalon tier and you'll soon get access to special bonus episodes. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net, or you can send us a message on our Twitter over at Wattcast Podcast. We will answer your questions, comments, and corrections here on the show. For those unfamiliar, The Wheel of Time is an epic fantasy story about the hazards of river crossings and unlicensed ferry boat operation. Last time we talked about chapters 16 to 20 of the first book in the series, The Eye of the World. We saw the party forced into a ruined city of shadows and separated by a murderous mist. This episode, we are digging into chapters 21 to 25, where we finally get out of Rand's head and find out what the deal is with the other two rivers folks now that the fellowship is broken and the party are on their separate paths. Katie, do you mind catching us up on what happens in chapter 21, Listen to the Wind? Yes. Um, in chapter 21, uh, we have Nanive tracking down uh, Lan and Moraine, um, and she does a little eavesdropping before they notice her. Um, and when she's eavesdropping, uh, I, I think that it's she she gets excited because perhaps Lan didn't know she was there, but... Mm -hmm. But she thinks that maybe Moraine did the whole time, but there's like a little bit of competitive play there. Moraine tells Nanive that she can also channel, but doesn't realize it, which is something that I kept having the misconception that had already happened, but this is when it actually happens. And uh, Maureen tells of a sickness that comes with uncontrolled channeling as a warning. Um, Nanive remembers suffering the events Maureen describes, even though she's uh, a bit in denial about it all still. And um, I think it's that kind of trope where the character knows that that the other character is right, but doesn't want to admit it yet and sort of denies what their ultimate truth is, in a sense. Which is very much in line with what we've seen of Nynaeve so far. Everybody talks about Two Rivers folk as being exceptionally stubborn, and I think she's considered pretty stubborn even by other Two Rivers folks and pretty of her own mind. So what did we think of this first chapter here of getting our first one in Nynaeve's head? It was okay. <laughs> I mean, I was happy that like they finally got out of Rand's head. I did. I wrote down two notes that I forgot to bring up before, but I found it kind of weird that there's all this like hype surrounding land being able to cover up their tracks and like make mm -hmm. sure that they're zigzagging and you know all this all the crap and then nine just shows up and is like 
you suck at tracking. I found you guys easy. Mm. And it was like, okay, so is that supposed to be hinting at the fact? Like, because at that point, we didn't yet really know for sure that she could access the power so was that supposed yeah. to be like a you know she's actually that good or he's just not as good as he thinks i think it's probably the former but um yeah. i just that seems to be like a running theme is like people think that they're better at things than they are because then someone else shows up and it's like haha <laughs> so i i wrote that down also i had a, a very salty note from chapter 20 that i forgot to Ooh. mention the fact that the entire freaking time getting to shut our logoth they were like, oh, we have to stay together. We have to be quiet. You kids are yep. helpless, all this crap. And then as soon as anything bad happens and the like misty stuff, the fog separates Moraine and Lan from the rest of them, they're like, well, fuck it. You're on your own. And that just like, <laughs> that drove me absolutely nuts. It's like, you think that these kids are helpless and you have to protect them. And you know, the, the evil guy is coming for them. And then as soon as confirmed the bad guys are on their way you're like eh, fuck it you guys will make it it's like th no that's not how that works and i felt that mm. was kind of a cop out um but most important note for chapter 21 is i'm doing a horse count because i am not a fan ah. of uh any kind of harm coming to animals at all <laughs> so i wrote down as i was reading through the chapters so confirmed that four of the horses are still alive if anyone is concerned about that and we don't know the fate of the other how many are there six uh, total i think there's the other two yeah about six and yeah right now they have not said where they are but i have a list a horse count list <laughs> i i know yeah i you're not the first person i've heard express a very very strong aversion to like especially to horse harm in, in, in books and it was actually something i was katie will remember thinking about pretty heavily debate debating portions of the uh the fan the ya fantasy novel i was working on last year with the <laughs> the the fate of the main character's horse in that one throughout the things they go through i think you're correct about Nynaeve as far as I can tell I'm like I'm like 90% positive she finds them with the power and that that goes into what Moraine is talking about with the thing where wisdoms talk about listening to the wind and stuff like that where they're actually doing something with flows of of spirit and air uh with the one power so I, th I, th I think for sure those were meant to be hints about what she's capable of which goes beyond even Lan's ability to leave behind and as far as the separation and Moraine's sudden like well fuck it nothing we can do for them now i wonder does this fit in with her general like her way of you, we talked about her go with the flow it with her go with the flow itness or whatever we would call that and just immediate acceptance of things as part of the pattern but we've also seen her willing to engage in really harsh triage decisions really quickly to where she's just decided nope well we can't save those people or this this is the more important thing now and i don't know i, I think i get the feeling in this chapter that she you know she lays out her case she's like look we, we, we can't go after all of them at once i'm only one person i'm only one Aes Sedai, I only have my one warder, and we can't separate. So I'm going to pick the highest priority pair or set of these kids to go after and make those the ones, because I think they are the ones most likely to get found by the Dark One right now. I don't know, I think th that was my interpretation of, although that could still be pretty annoying in the way that she describes it and is <laughs> kind of dismissive of Nynaeve's like sputtering indignity about like leaving the others to their own fates off in the wide world where they've never been well and i do wonder because i think it's this chapter where they explain what the coins were that she mm. gave them in chapter one so they like she can i think with the coins she can tell if they're alive or at least if they still have the coin so maybe that was also part of it that she's like i'll be able to tell if they're dead or whatever but also that's not enough <laughs> mm -hmm. i feel like that's not enough <laughs> she can also sense people she's healed right 
yeah. and track people she's healed, which I, who is who is unaccounted for between the two of those. So the three teenage boys all have a coin each. And um, has she not healed Nynaeve be, or uh, Egwene before or has she? I feel like she Forget. didn't. I think Nynaeve healed Egwene before, right? So they have the connection. So. Oh. Um, yeah, but. Right. Boring. Okay. And then as far as the coins go. I'm already forgetting. I have the sense, or maybe it felt like they were going to in the scene in chapter 20 or whenever it was when they aboard the spray Bail Doman's ship. Did they, did uh, Rand and Matt give up their coins as part of the cost of passage there? I mean, they're still on the ship with him, so yeah. presumably the coins are still around, but they're not touching them or on their persons anymore. I, I, I don't know. Am I making up? That, that seems like the inevitable thing that would happen there plot-wise, right? Like if you're structuring this story. They did give them up because Tom was annoyed and he was like, you didn't have to do that. I could have just told them mm -hmm. a story or something. But Right, right. Bought their passage, um, Gleeman style. Uh, so we also find out here Nynaeve knew and has always known Egwene is special, uh, even though Nynaeve's still in desire about the whole one power thing. I think she, she seems maybe a little faster to accept it about Egwene, though she denies that at first that they really need the White Tower's help for this. She's like, well, if I can learn to do it and control it on my own, then, then she could too. I don't see why not. And we find out that this is almost invariably fatal, right? Like it's extremely rare for somebody who to be able to channel the one power on their own in the first place and to do it in any controlled way. And even if they do, uh, they will die of these fevers maybe and and um, fits, I, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. You could manage to cruise control over the power even if touching the true source still comes at random. If you would not, it would have killed you eventually. Mm -hmm. And it will kill Egwene if you manage to stop her from going to Tar Valen. Um, of four who have the inborn ability that you and Egwene have, three die in a year if we do not find and train I think is the implication there so so that's not good for Egwene's chances right now if the, if she doesn't get to the White Tower pretty soon I mean one plausible explanation for why Moraine just happened to be in two rivers would be that she was like searching out those with the one power so she could guide them towards their training I don't know if that will be a part of the story but that that would be a, a plausible reason. And she points out that not only does Nynaeve has great potential, she says that she thinks with training, Nynaeve might become more powerful than even Egwene. And I believe she can become one of the most powerful Aes Sedai we have seen in centuries. So you almost wonder if there's something like a bonfire glow coming out of the two rivers <laughs> at this point, if Aes Sedai can sense one another and sense the, the channeling or the touching of the one power, that something is going on with this isolated uh, village of, of sheep farmers and the like out here. Nynaeve is even stubborn about asking Moraine for help. She would rather Trollocs had appeared than she had for been forced to say please to this woman, we're told. Once again, Moraine says that, uh, she gives her, like Nynaeve is asking, why are you doing this? Uh, what What is it that you want with Rand, Matt, and Perrin? Okay, I get what you want with Egwene so badly. That makes sense. Yeah, but And Moraine replies again, the Dark One wants them. If the Dark One wants a thing, I oppose it. Can there be a simpler reason or a better? And, you know, we know she doesn't lie or we're told by Tom that I said I don't lie and, and I'm thinking to this answer maybe not but there sure could be a more complete reason right than the, than the one that Moraine is giving right now for why she is interested in Rand and Matt and Perrin oh Moraine does say uh the two who went down river may need me more they have lost their coins and merge all are either pursuing them or else trying to intercept us at Whitebridge she sighed I must take care of the greatest the greatest need first okay, okay. so that's partly why she's rushing um because they, they've been separated from their coins and she knows the merge rolls after them um 
Nynaeve is having this real internal struggle because Light of Wisdom is supposed to look after all her people. Why do I have to choose like this? No, but none of these two reverse characters like being put on the horns of a dilemma the, every time it's come up so far. And finally, as the chapter ends, Nynaeve swears to herself that if they did not find Egwene and the boys, all of them alive and unharmed, not all of Moraine's power would protect her. Not all her power. I can use it, woman. You told me so yourself. I can use it against you. So we're already getting um, fantasies of possible uh, anti-Moraine revenge here from Nynaeve. So, Keely, what happens in chapter 22 A Path Chosen? Yeah, so I have like no notes for this one. This one was really short for me, but it's uh, a Perrin chapter. And so Perrin finds Egwene and Bella, the horse, <laughs> on the riverbank. Um, they like kind of argue over all of the bad options that they have for like what to do mm -hmm. next, but eventually decide to just cut through the wilderness and head straight for Camelin, which is the capital city. Yep. Yeah, we get, uh, we sure do get Perrin being baffled with Egwene a lot throughout this chapter and and his last chapter with her and the coming parent chapter <laughs> with it with Egwene um and expressing frustration at her her seeming mercurialness and her going back and forth on whether she wants to decide things for them or lead or not I, I started to get pretty annoyed in the following chapter I yeah. I guess I like okay parents being parent here but then by the next chapter I was like all we're hearing about is how bossy Egwene is and how uh like he wants to be in control but she's but how can he deal with the fact that she also likes to be in control? And I, I feel like that, anyway, it goes into the next chapter, but, you know, it, there's even a comment by another character of, about, oh, you know, it's it seems like she's a pushy one or something. And I was just like, oh, I'm so irritated right now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, and I guess we'll get even more into that in his next chapter, because like you said, it gets more, more intense. He also sure does love his folksy sayings, Perrin. I, I started like marking out the number. I guess he's, that's like sort of his role, his defining characteristics so far before we've been in his head, but I'm noticing it even more now. Uh, the first one here in this chapter was like hoping that hoping that things will turn out, they'll find the others or whatever. But hope is like a piece of string when you're drowning, he says to Egwene. It just isn't enough to get you out by yourself. And then it's just like almost every other page, I think, of these chapters, he he has some folksy saying or another, a lot of them from Master Alver, who is, oh, that's Egwene's dad, right? Who is the mayor? And another's from Master Lou. Luhan, who I think he is apprenticed to as a blacksmith. And they decide that if, is it Moraine they're talking about here? Yeah, if Moraine doesn't find us in Camelin in a few days, we go on to Tarvalin and put our case before the Amarlin seat. Perrin took a deep breath. Two weeks ago, you'd never seen an Aes Sedai. Now you're talking about the Amarlin seat. Light! Um, and they decide to set off. And I don't know that I have anything else to say about this brief chapter. And it doesn't look like any of us do. Uh, which takes us into the next one, still with Perrin, in chapter 23, Wolf Brother. Here, Perrin finds out, and Egwene kind of admits sheepishly that she's been starting campfires with the power. Uh, so she is making use of it. She is practicing the things that Moraine started to show her. She's not able to do it consistently. She's sort of struggling when he comes in on her. He was wondering how she did it so effortlessly before, and uh, and she's not able to find, um, to get her mind to the place it needs to be this time. They're unable to find game along their path. They struggle to survive off foraged roots for days and days and days. Um, things are not looking grim. Like, we don't get the sense that they're going to starve to death, but it's becoming an increasingly uncomfortable comfortable and we soon learn lost adventure because they stumble upon the campfire of Elias Makera, a yellow-eyed man who claims that he and Perrin can talk to wolves. And he's this real... We've talked about the ways in which Lan is very Aragorn and I think that's true. Lan has extreme Aragorn vibes. Elias has extreme Strider vibes. He is this like like dirty 
out in the country, uh, scraggly beard, a kind of sharp-eyed, haunting, slightly bestial, um, hangs with animals guy uh, and talks to wolves guys, which are all like aspects of Strider as we're introduced to him in Fellowship of the Rings, more so in the book than the movie, I think. And Elias lets them know that they're way off course. They're like, go, uh, the chart they're going, he says they're going to pass like so many miles north of Camelin. They might even never hit civilization before they make it to the spine of the world and like accidentally wander over into Aiel or, or Trolloc territory. And he offers to escort them south to Andor, where they're going, where, where Camelin is the capital. And I, and I forget if they've even like wandered clear out of the country at this point. Because although I don't think it has actually been said explicitly, because the Two Rivers folk do not spend a lot of time thinking about politics or political borders, but I believe the Two Rivers is in Andor. Um, like it's part of, um, like Andor feels like kind of our England or Britain analog here. Camelin uh, being the capital, being kind of the London analog, and they are trudging admittedly in the opposite direction. If you were coming from like the, the boonies in, in the north in Britain, you'd be heading south to London, whereas they were going northeast before, and now they got to head south again, because I guess that they overshot it. Uh, what did we think about this chapter, Wolf Brother, and about the Wolf Brother we meet? I feel like I thought Elias was an interesting character, um, so I was happy for him to be introduced with his yellow eyes. Um, and I think it's an interesting aspect of Perrin that we find that he can sense and communicate with the wolves, although he seems to be in like the similar type of denial that um, Nynaeve is in mm -hmm. about, you know, he doesn't want to believe that he can. It, it's kind of interesting because in this world where there are um, lots of different, like, uh, I, I mean, otherworldly aspects going on and different powers and, and there's these fierce creatures chasing them, you'd think that having any kind of special power at all would be desirable and make you feel stronger and um, more in control and more powerful. Hmm. So it's the denial is interesting in the situation that they're all in because they're being hunted. So if I was being hunted and someone was like, you have this power, I'd be like, fabulous. Let me hone in on that and use it. <laughs> Chat with wolves, awesome. What can they tell me? Yeah, and I was getting really annoyed with Perrin. <laughs> um, <laughs> the fact that he kept pointing out that basically, like, Egwene wanting to do anything. I think at one point, like, he literally says, like, well, in all the hero stories, you know, there's no woman <laughs> having an opinion <laughs> the whole time. And I was like, hey, oh, all right, fuck you, Perrin. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I, I'm getting annoyed with his character and that aspect of that. It just feels like Robert Jordan doesn't want to write a woman that doesn't have some like massive flaw that makes her annoying to all the men. Um, mm. But on the other hand, I feel like he's also doing a disservice to all the male character because they then come across as like very simple-minded like well why do you think so much why do you have opinions because like clearly you know i don't think this much and i don't have opinions and i just go blow and um so trying to see you know both sides of it and not just hating on the dude but also i wrote that um they it, the whole scene where they're talking about them like not being able to find food felt mm -hmm. like that lasted a really long time it was two days which you know not having that was it yeah like not having food on you i'm sure you know once you hit day two you're going probably a little crazy but it definitely just read to me that, like they were together for such a long time and it was two days before mm. they hit uh the area where they find elias so i was like okay well you know they definitely set the stage for these kids being hella dramatic and i do so is this parent thing like so we know that rand can kind of like hone in on this other kind of personality trait or like this other being inside of him where like he was an asshole to the white cloaks and like 
he can kind of takes him over yeah it seems and yeah yeah and then was it matt that was like screaming language mm -hmm. like the old god language so like there's something yep. with him so like the wolf thing i guess is parents yeah i mean it's the first we've gotten and i mean I, he, he was shouting battle cries before i don't think he spoke in the old tongue i don't think he understood it the way Egwene did when matt was speaking which was weird because she also doesn't speak the old tongue but yeah i think this is this is his thing so far like where everybody get, getting these revelations about themselves that they all seem to have whether it's the one power or one of these other powers that are not of the one power which i guess is not the one number one <laughs> maybe that's what it is. the number one power the one power and then all these various other other magics that exist out in the world or that aren't really presented as magic necessarily because nobody seems to really understand what these phenomena are or what's happening to the two rivers kids and I keep saying kids uh, but <laughs> I, I looked it up after and I think I was I think I was saying last time I thought they were all 18 17 or 18 but Egwene is 17 from from what I looked up uh, there's site websites that have done the math based on the years because mm -hmm. the books never actually tell you what their actual ages are they just tell you what year they were born at some point um, but Egwene is 17 and Perrin is 19, as are Rand and Matt. And they do feel awful, like, I wonder how much of the, like, it's hard to parse it from the gender frustrations. I, I try to figure out here to what extent Jordan is trying to write them as annoying teenagers who have a lot of room for growth and who have a lot of really limited perspective and raging hormones and, and at, like, just constant um, attitude issues and just really don't know how to get along with each other in a productive way. They kind of get there eventually, I guess, but Perrin's got to grumble about it in his head about Egwene nonstop. And I don't know, I don't know how successful it is because I, I feel like it's often, this is, a, there. it's really hard to write people who aren't in your age group in general. It's easy to forget what people younger than you are, what it was like to be that age. And it's hard to imagine sometimes what it's like to be older. Um, so I don't, I don't know how well he does that, if that's what Jordan's doing here. And if they're all, if all three of the boys are coming across as just a little too, a little too immature and petulant for their age, maybe for, for 90 teen, um, especially given, you pointed out before, Keely, they've had to take on like some adult responsibilities in the village and they've not lived like an e easy life, but they're not like off at college partying or no. anything. Katie, it looked like you maybe had some thoughts. I mean, it's interesting that I, I do feel like they read more like 14 or 15 to me, but... You said it is it is a really difficult thing to do. I know in the book that I'm writing in each draft, like the voice of the main character who started out as nine and is now 13, just it changes drastically. And <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to do. And I was sort of before when I was finishing up the last chapter, I was thinking of something you said in the last episode, Caleb, that like in order for this series to continue through all these books and these characters to continue to develop, obviously, they're going to become more more full and and um they're gonna hopefully less less annoying and more worldly and in their perspectives and um yeah so like I'm, I'm holding on to that a little bit and I guess if we're starting off at their kind of most immature state and, mm -hmm. and perhaps the writer's least familiarity with these characters and then we'll be growing from there so um yeah I look forward to that <laughs> it is a lot to ask for a reader right to get through we're at what like 45 percent of this book maybe in the, these chapters this week and if if we're all still being annoyed as hell with the perspective characters that we're in at this time that's maybe dragging its feet a little about doing that so even without having seen any of the show yet beyond teasers and trailers I think I am getting a very good understanding revisiting eye of the world why 
they seem to be choosing to focus on Moraine so uh. centrally as the perspective character and as the one that the that an audience and maybe especially now an adult audience for this show since most of us who read this book when we were kids are not kids anymore and maybe have less patience for for this uh, either this bullshit or this portrayal of what maybe Jordan uh, sees as childish bullshit um so maybe uh, I don't know that seems like a pretty good reason to me to at least anchor us in 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 Moraine even if it is going to be giving a lot of things away early on about the larger story beyond the fact that you know you, I could you could look at it from a production point of view and say oh well she's the most marketable star uh, Rosamund Pike by far we to sell you know probably to sell her on the story we had to sell her as the main character in the way that like Sean Bean was for season one of Game of Thrones of course we all we all know how that went long term with a bit of audience audience switcheroo there so we do learn some things from Elias in this chapter he talks maybe more about the spine of the world and the Aiel and the Aiel waste more than we've heard so far and they'll come up in the next couple of chapters as well here and more and more it, it feels like we're, we're getting these hints of the wider world and it's interesting um, we've been talking a lot about Dune recently as the, that feels like the whole world's been talking a lot about Dune recently the difference in approach sorry without hopefully taking us down a tangent there uh, where between the Dune movies and the Dune books I feel like that all the Dune movies we've gotten open in their first scenes with with the Atreides and with Paul in a very eye of the world kind of way where we're very slowly brought into things and we got to get lots of exposition from all the other characters about what's going on in the world who are these factions what what, what are these um uh what what, what is a, a Bene Gesserit like what what is going on in, a, in the wider area but I went back and reread the first chapter of Dune and it just throws you right in there no, nothing like that and nothing like the eye of the world maybe like the prologue here actually but it just like throws you into the Gamjabar you have no idea what's going on if you don't know what who any of these people are or what these terms mean and you just know that basically like a teenager or or a very young adult is being put through this like hellish trial by this strange older woman um, who belongs to the secret religious order that seems to have something to do with his mother and it's just like and I can see advantages to both approaches to the easing in that this novel has been doing versus the like throwing you in the fire but I feel like if Dan were here he would certainly be voicing the concern he's brought up that it's still taking us a long time to really get these characters plugged into the world like our main two rivers teens are still so in their like their own small mental world and the mindset that they grew up with uh, even though they're meeting all these new people and all these finding out about these strange things that they never knew before. I won't say anything about the movie, but I do feel like the book Dune is, I, I feel it's an incredibly admirably crafted book. Um, like, like I read it and I'm like, Oh God, I wish I wrote that. <laughs> um, and, and I think what you said is one of the reasons why, because we are pulled so quickly into the, I don't know, some kind of essence of the characters as well as the story mm-hmm. in the world. Um, without having these kind of slow pace um, explanations. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a complex thing to do. And um, not to say that, like, I, I actually like some of Jordan's writing a lot. I think he's really good at descriptions of the, especially of like the darker characters. And mm-hmm. um and he's certainly incredibly imaginative, but I think when you compare it to something like Dune, it's like this slow stretched out thing compared to just like jumping in 
Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that also has anything to do with the structure of, I think Dune was one of those last big novels that was published as a serial and it, like in, in, in small short story chunks in a magazine at a time for like the year before I think it was actually published, like put together and published as a novel. And you really like, like you can't keep readers attention, right? If you're taking an entire year of issues of this magazine where we still really haven't gotten to the, the full meat of the journey, uh, you've got to like get their attention right away. And I think that's maybe something that did not stay true as much for for uh, for Herbert's later novels that I feel like, especially Dune Messiah, like things slow down so quickly <laughs> from the pace that we reached at the end of Dune. But we'll, we'll see. I guess we'll see how Jordan handles that. I, I tend to think my memory is that he really reaches a, re a, a pretty cool place by the end of this novel and that he's in peak form for the rest of this original trilogy. We'll see if that holds true because um, I do remember things do slow down a lot in book four that's far in the future we're here with Elias now learning about uh, how much wolves hate Trollocs uh, they hate Trollocs and half men worse than wildfire worse than anything talks about how they they hunted with humankind uh, in the time before time at the beginning of the world maybe or in a prior age Whew, we learn more about the red Aja this is at least the third time we have heard about the possible sense that there are different orders or factions within the Aes Sedai even though I don't think we even know what Aja Moraine is of at this point. I don't think she's mentioned or anybody's even thought to ask her what they've learned that there are these like red Aja who, um, this is Elias putting the red Aja, those that like hunting men who mess with the one power that one of the gentle me once. I told them to their faces they were black Aja and served the dark one, I said, and they didn't like that at all. Uh, they tried to catch him. He wound up killing a couple of warders. Bad business, he says, killing warders. He didn't like it, but he did what he had to do to escape these Aes Sedai who thought he could maybe use the power or wanted to experiment on on him or whatever it was that they wanted. And he talks about this wolf speaking power, whatever it is, as being older, old as humankind, old as wolves. And I said, I don't like that. They don't like old things coming again and ancient barriers weakening. And they, they're afraid that the dark one will get loose as a part of all this. We learn about Elias's pack, which maybe we'll, um, we'll get more detail on these wolves as they weave into the chapters and about their own leadership structure. It seems like Dapple's the head of the family. And, and then we have Perrin like feeling all the other wolves nearby and realizing that he can sense them and kind of sense emotions from them at least and, and hatred hatred and the taste of blood. Katie, do you want to let us know what happens in the next chapter, 24, Flight Down the RNL? In uh, chapter 24, Rand has another one of his uh, Baal Zaman dreams um, that it seems are coming pretty frequently, like maybe every night. I'm mm -hmm. not sure. Tom pretends that Matt and Rand are his apprentices. Uh, he teaches them juggling and the flute respectively. Um, trying to make everyone really believe this story that he has spun. Um, they entertain the crew and then they spot this a metal tower with no doors or windows as they're uh, sailing, trolling by. Um, and Rand climbs the mast and is hit with a wave of giddiness, nearly falling off um, before Tom snaps him out of it. Uh, that was that one was a bit strange to me. I wasn't I wasn't sure if he was being kind of possessed. I guess that mm. was the impl implication there. But with Matt, it was a much much more obvious. Yeah. Uh, he he certainly was kind of overcome with this desire for treasure again, which seems to to be something that happens to him um and then we find out that he did take something from Shadar Lagoth um which was you know what Moraine warned them not to do um but he thinks somehow it wasn't because he didn't take it directly from our um guy with the M name Morda yes 
Uh, more death. How could I forget? (laughs) So he he feels like it's fine, but we can obviously see that Matt is not fine. Um, And I certainly this reflects back to chapter 19, which that chapter annoyed me, but I guess I can see here that it's building something uh, as far as Matt's character and the, the possession that is overcoming him. So I think that's that's an interesting aspect that's going on here with Matt right now. Yeah, and I wrote <laughs> wrote down Matt and his friggin' need for treasure, and then Matt <laughs> definitely fucked up by taking that knife. <laughs> um, and it, like he says, like, you know, like you just said, Katie, like he specifically says, well, Mordeth didn't give it to me. I took it. And right, it wasn't a gift. Right. And that's what Moraine said. She was like, okay, as long as he didn't give you. But like, we know that she doesn't fully tell the truth. She doesn't lie. She just like omits things. So like, this is very, for me, like, whitest kids you know, Abe Lincoln, now you <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> like, you're, this is setting up yeah. the stage for him to fuck up. And that probably wasn't even something she meant to omit, right? Like, she probably thought no. the implication was clear, like, don't take treasure from Shatter Logoth. And I even got the sense that I think maybe it says, do you remember that, that Matt, like, won't talk about the dreams he's having anymore? I feel like I, from the dream that is set up at the beginning of this, where Rand is still trying to evade the Alzamon, um, it feels like maybe in Matt's dream, he is in cahoots with him or something. I, I don't know. Maybe he's not um, mm. able to resist anymore or, you know, some of that. I don't know. I guess that I'm just projecting and, and making that up. But it seems like Rand in the dreams is still really putting up the resistance and maybe Matt mm-hmm. isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he seems a bit not nonchalant. That's not the word I want for it. But almost like the dream is like not remotely his biggest mm-hmm. concern right now and doesn't think it's near nearly as important as his dream. <laughs> His current treasure-seeking obsession. Speaking of the dream, I liked the first couple of Balsamon dream sequences a lot in the earlier chapters. This one is still very vividly described, and it's a very cool world that's put here. There was a distinct point about halfway through, though, I think the paragraph where there had been two or three close brushes, uh, Rand is describing, though he cannot remember them clearly, but for a long, long time, how long he had run while Balsamon vainly pursued. And I was starting to lose interest in yeah. this scene, where it's already a hard sell, I think, to for a dream sequence to feel invested in these dream sequences at least we know that there's something important or real about them they're not just dreams they have like a concrete element Rand wakes up with his finger pricked and bleeding like yeah. uh, it gets pricked in the dream and I did start it near the end of it in in the in the the thorn maze I started to get interested again just because it was you know more fun scenery and of course balls Amon shows up again in his blood red cloak flame searing in his eyes and doing his usual threats is uh, and talking about the eye of the world not not gonna serve Rand and you are my hound and I will not if you will not course at my command I will strangle you with the corpse of the great serpent whether that's literal or figurative I guess we'll find out um, and it, it got my attention again but I do feel like I don't know if I can take another pages and pages long dream sequence building up to exactly the same thing yeah. to uh, you know yell, both of them yelling things at each other Rand not understanding any of it and then pricking on something and, w- and waking up I guess this was a, nothing to do with the dream but right after it I, I highlighted this line because I'm like is this like a little literary joke um, the spray made haste slowly down the RNL and immediately um, and I'm wondering wait <laughs> did, did it make haste or was it slow because those <laughs> seem like exactly the opposite thing to me and I'm like trying to dictionary is there like a euphemistic sense of, ma- of making haste which means just to be going somewhere and I didn't find it that kind of to me feels like when his wife Harriet was editing she was like you should use a different word and so he just like mm. <laughs> picked out a thesaurus to find another word um, <laughs> or maybe she said you should 
change this phrase. And he was like, why are you so bossy? And then he didn't change the phrase. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 mm, yeah. Uh, I guess we'll <laughs> we'll find out maybe in our in our potential future Harriet episode, yeah. like to what extent that does characterize their their relationship or not. I hope not, but we'll see. We get like you know some light background drama with the crew and possibly their distrust. It doesn't seem like it's really anything big to worry about yet. It's like it doesn't feel like it's to the foreground. We pass uh, another very familiar either late fellowship or early two tower scene of giant kings and queens stone statues alongside the river. Their feet like so that their features are weathered and smooth. I'm like, yep, that's the Argonath, all right. That's the, the pillars of kings um, signaling that the part that the fellowship is broken and we're going down the river to the next chapter of our adventure. So we're sure hitting those beats. We get to that, that tower of metal. We learned a little bit about the sea folk who are sailing and searching for the Koramor, their, their chosen one. So yet another group of people that were introduced here to with their with their own agenda. We get the possible possession scene with Rand, Matt's weirdness about, about his dagger. Uh, any last thoughts on 24 um so the end of Rand's dream i thought was probably the best part <laughs> well like when he wakes up but also when um he looks in the, like a mirror and his face kind of like merges with the dark one's face mm. i was like oh symbolism i like it <laughs> like i thought it was creepy and really cool question do we know if egwene is having dreams like this i'm not sure i remember her being cagey and hesitant about uh, when dreams came up as a conversation once but i also remember tom convincing the three boys to keep their dreams a secret because he he didn't think it was a good idea for Moraine to find out. Katie, it looks like you might have remembered something about that. I'm not sure if Egwene is having the dreams, but I, I was I thought it was the last chapter, but perhaps it's the next one where we find out that since Perrin has been around the wolves, he has not been having the dreams. So I thought, mm. isn't that correct? Is that correct? I think, I think that's what he says, which I think is interesting. So it's like the, the wolves are having a positive effect on him in some way, or like they are deterring the evil. I don't know. So I thought- Because they're really an antagonistic with the Dark One and his servants, it seems. Yeah. So they're like holding him off or something. So I thought that that was interesting. But I think that's in chapter 25. Yeah, the, the mirrors were pretty cool in, and boy, I'm, I'm having trouble remembering now because it was such a dreamy, hard to follow sequence visually where I think Red escaped into the mirrors somehow he does something that instinctively and I think it wow this is all in his head in the dream but I think he knows that it's something really really dangerous that he's doing but less dangerous than getting caught by Baalzaman so he does something where he slips into the mirrors and he's watching Baalzaman and like a hundred of them like the reflections moving around and I think uses that to escape him I almost feel like I ought to have read that um, sequence again because I, I don't have a clear picture of it in my mind but I didn't get a chance to go back to it so maybe, maybe I will before next episode but yeah Katie you were talking about um, getting back to the wolves in chapter 25 the traveling people this is where we do return to Perrin's point of view Elias and his wolves lead Perrin and Egwene to a camp of the extremely pacifist Tuatha'an whom the Emmons fielders know as Tinkers uh, and who are I think to me seems like a, a blindingly obvious analog for uh, for European uh, Roma and uh, the traveling folk in, in Ireland, maybe and see if we got some combination of features between the two. But uh, but they they are they are filling that niche, including in the prejudices that the the two rivers people have about them. Perrin learns about the so-called way of the leaf from their leader Rain Rain. 
Ryan. Uh, I forgot to look up pronunciation on that one. I think it's like maybe Ryan. Egwe um, dances with Ryan's grandson, Aram, or Aram. Thoughts on chapter 25? I liked the way of the leaf. Um, I like the description. The leaf lives its appointed time and does not struggle against the wind that carries it away. The leaf does no harm and finally falls to nourish new leaves. So it should be with all men and women. I was I was into that um, perspective, <laughs> uh, which obviously is kind of starkly opposed to what's going on in the rest of the book and maybe not a plausible approach in dealing with dark friends, but um, interesting nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I do. I like the way Jordan presents them a lot. And I think we get even though Perrin is very skeptical of it here and immediately like, well, what about, you know, violence in defense of your family? Like, well, like clearly you need to you need to use physical force sometimes and, and things like that. And I, I think Jordan does a pretty good job, even in Perrin's perspective of presenting their culture and case pretty eloquently. Like, uh, like you said, the, the wording of the way of the leaf and why they have this philosophy, which we learn. Elias is very opposed to and that there's like this soft dynamic where he knows he knows these folk he knows Ryan they know each other they've had previous encounters and Ryan uh, you know Elias feels like Ryan is kind of preaching at him and trying to get him to adopt this philosophy because Elias is very violent and and he like sort of lives on the run because people want to hunt him down people um, have tried to to capture him or kill him before and he's had to kill in what he sees as self-defense. And he sees himself as like this this hunter in the forest and free in that way. And so his wolf philosophy doesn't really gel with this way of nonviolence. I do wonder right from the beginning here, I remember having this feeling the first time I read the book, you hinted at this, Katie, whether, whether the novel kind of stacks the deck against the tinkers, against the two out the odd, by setting this in a world where we know that there is an ultimate destructive all-consumptive evil that so far it sure seems like you've got to use some killing force to deal with sometimes less uh less like a, a gross faceless uh like mouthy uh windy shadow hopping snake-like man like cuts you down with his poisoned blade i don't know it feels like there's something a little unfair in the presumption here and the setup because of, of course we do have and of course we have like real societies and real faiths and real religions and, and uh, you know being my family originally being from pennsylvania where where my my parents grew up and where my grandparents are from think a lot about the quakers about the society of friends and and their 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 philosophy of nonviolence in general and you know that they're like sort of the his, deeply in the history of pennsylvania and the colonization of it but are still like, you know, obviously still around today. And, and obviously that is a philosophy uh, that people have found themselves able able to live by. And there's much more to it than that, you know, for, for somebody like the, the friends. But yeah, I don't know. That, that's my rambling sort of like thinking about the ways in which they, the Tuathan are presented here, what role they might play in this narrative, whether there's something about parents' perspective that's going to be forced on them because of the way this world is. I, I don't know. We, we also learn about their, we, we get an anecdote about the Aiel, uh, a story of an, mm -hmm. of an Aiel woman, uh, a spear maiden. Did anybody make anything of that sequence? at all, um, where we're kind of hearing the story of a message she is passing off to the Tuatha'an? So I wrote it down. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I thought like Maidens of the Spear was a really awesome <laughs> group name yes, yeah. for the female Aiel who are fighters. I felt like this was kind of the first introduction that we have of where women are not like necessarily looked down upon. Maybe I just like latched onto it because I thought that was cool as hell. But because uh, <laughs> I feel like any other time they've talked about women so far, it's been in kind of like a really negative way of like, you know, even the women that kind of lead the uh, like neighborhoods or villages or whatever, like mm -hmm. someone's complaining about them. But this was like, oh, these are like really strong fighters like they're out in the desert um so i thought that that was kind of cool 
um, I wrote, they said, was it leaf blighter and sight burner? And mm-hmm. then a quote about burning the eye of the world. And so I was like, okay, this shit must be significant in some way, but I don't know what it is yet. So I'm just going to note it and hopefully it'll make sense <laughs> later. Yeah, this I, this Aiel in her dying message said that the Dark One, yeah, also means to slay the Great Serpent. And she says, warn the people, Lost One, which weigh, weighs heavily on Ryan because he um, he says, oh, she called us the Lost, the, the Tuatha'an. I never knew before how much they loathe us because we did learn the Tinkers can travel. They're one of the few people who can travel freely into the Aiel Waste and nobody, nobody bothers them really wherever they go because people rely on them for their for their services and for their skill with with tinkering um and but also because they're they're so nonviolent that people don't really worry about them other than places like the two rivers i guess where where people have these beliefs uh that the that the the Tuatha'an are going to steal uh their stuff or steal their children away which are real world things that you will still hear today in Europe in prejudices against the Roma you hear that that language is really common in a lot of countries I mean I've only visited one or two but have talked to people from others where yeah it's apparently still very much a thing today of where people believe you know the traveling folk come come to town or distrust of these people who don't live in any one place and they're definitely going to steal your kids away and and uh and all, all these other sort of things where from their explanation I think it's it's either Ryan or um, the other woman's name the, the Tuatha'an woman who's a little bit younger than him I can't recall if it's his wife or not who talks talks about or Ela I guess is her name talking about yeah I mean sometimes people come off and join us uh, yeah. but, uh, and they, they want to like become a part of our lives we don't steal children or maybe it's Elias who points that out too it's like you know city folk get upset when when their youth start wandering off and in, into this, this peaceful life on the road uh, with these very colorful literally colorful wearing all these like ultra bright colors primary colored clothing and everything that is interesting it almost has a cult-like feel to it like they're the hmm. brightly colored cult-like pacifists and there's just this negative connotation that they they kind of wrap you up in there um i think even uh what yeah what's the character's name that's telling us about um his pacifist ways the kind Ryan, I think it's Ryan, but I have yeah, no yeah. clue what so the pronunciation is. He even gets scolded <laughs> a little bit for like trying to like convert yeah. the newcomers, which I thought was... was mm. Yeah, they definitely... I, I thought that this was an interesting concept to like bring this group in that is just so opposite everything that's happening right now but it did feel very culty that it was like as soon as mm. they get near him they were like just shut up like we, you know we don't want to hear what you have to say you've told us a thousand <laughs> times i'm gonna slam the door shut on you um but i also thought it it kind of read to me the whole thing about the kids it kind of read to me as like uh you know you're you grow up in a small town you go off to college which you're like your parents are all happy about but you come back and you think differently than the, the town mm. and the parents are like surprise Pikachu face like like what do you mean you have your own opinions and ideas and so the parents to me this is presenting as like the kids are being exposed to the world and other ways of life and the parents can't handle that and so they're like they're stealing our children away <laughs> like I think your kids maybe are becoming adults mm. you know with their own opinions but I don't know that's kind of how I read that in regard to the message that um Keely read for us it, it seems it's going to be really important, which you guys said. Um, but I also think it's a bit of a convoluted way that they end up receiving this message. If yeah. you know, it's like it's like Third a dying yeah. friend told someone that told 
<laughs> we thought perhaps that we should tell you random strangers in the woods and here you go. <laughs> and then you wonder the, the word is spreading. Yeah, and then you wonder like I mean I think we we all played that whisper down the lane game in in elementary mm. school. So like what was the actual mess? Because let's be realistic, by the time that it gets like, you know, it's not just hearsay. It's like, well then and they said and they said and they said. By the time it gets to you, it's got everyone's own interpretation on it. So probably for the context of the book and the story, we're supposed to take it as very literal. This is exactly what was shared. But also, like, mm. if someone's dying in front of me, I might not be paying attention to what they're saying. I might be panicking about the fact that they're dying. So I don't know. Especially since Ryan's like, yeah, I, I barely understood half the <laughs> words she was saying. And it's like, <laughs> and yet we're relating this however many ears and mouths down the, the whispering row. Ironically, uh, Keely, what you were just pointing out about that that aspect um, where towns and city folk might think of the Tuathan as a cult that is stealing their adult children away, even though these kids are grown up and, and finding their own path. We ironically get uh, the inversion of that with the Tuathan too, briefly, where Perrin asks what happens when someone can't follow the way, a, a tinker, I mean. And Ryan and Ela exchanged a worried look, and Ryan said, they leave us, the, the lost, go to live in, in the villages. And I immediately, I get the sense there of, oh, yeah, there it is. There's the, the you know, the, the shunning of the insular religious community who refuses to accept that their that their youths are, are going off and being corrupted by the world. Like, uh, they're leaving on their permanent rumspringa, yeah. to bring it back to, to Pennsylvania-related uh, associations. Um, Ila even Ila stared in the direction her grandson had gone. The lost cannot be happy. Uh, she sighed, and just this, you know, it almost. I don't know. We don't know that they're shunning them per se, but that's certainly. I feel like that's probably the case where they start to treat them as unpeople um, if they give up the way of the leaf and embrace the ways of the world. But I also kind of wonder what that means because I took it way farther than it needed to be. Which means that mm. they've discovered their lust for blood and therefore they mm. have to leave because they've discovered that they love killing and that's why people leave. Oh, oh. Which I, I'm sure <laughs> that's not at all what they're saying. They're probably just saying that, like, you know, they discovered that they like watching wrestling matches and that goes against our thing. Not that they have, you know, this insatiable lust for blood and so that's why they leave but that's much more entertaining for me to think that that's what's happening here. Just thinking we're all the lost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh so yeah, we we learned we learned a little more. Ironically, we're like learning as much about the Aiel, I feel like, in this passage as we are about the Tuatha'an. So that's interesting because they spent so much time relating stories of where they've traveled, and I guess that was among the more recent ones. Um we learned that among Aiel, men do not sing. Isn't that strange? With some exceptions for like funeral dirges. We get we get a few more details there. We learned about the waste and how dangerous it is and how unlikely it is that any Trollocs ever went into there, which is why they have a hard time believing that's how this woman died. Uh, El Elias is like a hundred miles into the waste. Impossible. Jevikashar, that's what the Trollocs call the waste, the dying ground. They wouldn't go a hundred miles in the waste if all the Murdral and the Blatt were driving them. Uh, and again, you know, another place that Trollocs won't go uh, unless they do, um, it seems, if something <laughs> sufficiently motivates them to. We get, um, we haven't even talked about like uh, Egwene is, well, she's just kind of like listening to Aram or Aram um, being a little flirtatious. One, one of the, one of the younger tinkers, maybe around her age or Perrin's age. Um, and of course, Perrin is getting really, he's being very Perrin and he's being very like obnoxious about it. And he doesn't explicitly say this in his mind or, and I'm trying to figure out like why he's being such an ass about Egwene maybe even just being in conversation with this dude and then later going off to dance with him is that he, I wonder if he feels affronted on behalf of Rand because Rand and Egwene are kind of betrothed to each other unofficially and they're kind of supposed to marry off. But I don't know, he doesn't really vocalize that or 
verbalize it in his thoughts. And we start to get what is becoming a running gag here of each of the three Two River Teen boys. Baron here is like, Rand would know what to do, he thought. Rand had an easy way with girls. And we've already seen, I believe, Rand thinking the same thing about Perrin would know what to do. He would know how to handle this. He, he always seems like confident and smooth with women. And, and uh, I, can, I can, hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler to say, we will get exactly the same thing from Matt's perspective. Uh, Keely rolling her eyes and shaking her head over here at our, at our Two Rivers teen dynamic. Egwene is like sort of a little, a little myth that the parent is giving her such a hard time about it. And he's just like, she's like, Aram is a gentle boy. He's fun to be with. He makes me laugh. And he apologizes. I'm glad you had fun dancing. And and she breaks down crying, um, thinking about the others, hoping they're alive. And then he falls asleep and the wolves are waiting for him. Any other thoughts on chapter 25 here? So I wonder about the wolves. Do they, are they actually like some kind of separate like somewhat powerful being or like thing that they're able to keep the dark one away from Matt and like that keep Elias grounded. So, you know, they were afraid that he would access the power, but he's got the wolf. So he doesn't, or is it more hmm. simple than that? And it's just a very protective thing. Like if, if you're out in the woods and you're surrounded by wolves and you're not friends with them, you're going to fucking die. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, I feel like it could also be, that this is the first time since the two rivers attack that Perrin feels safe and he's not mm. just overwhelmed with fear. And so maybe it's like the Dark One feeds on fear or that the wolves are mm. kind of like this other, you know, group race, whatever that that is fighting against the Dark One. I don't know. I don't know how fleshed out the wolves are going to be, but I just thought like if I was, you know, you see those videos of uh, the wolf sanctuaries and people can like nap with the wolf. And mm -hmm. I was like, I think I would be the most comforted, protected person on earth if I was chilling with a wolf that I knew wasn't going to kill me. Oh, yeah, that, the safety of the pack. Yeah. Um, yeah, I th maybe maybe that's a, you said one or the other, and maybe that's a non-disjunctive or, right? Like maybe uh, could be some of both. I, I don't I don't really know at, at this point. Um, we, once again, it's like we're just starting to suss out the parameters of this and, and what's going on. Um, though it, all, it does kind of feel like it's happening pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's because we weren't in parents' perspective by now, but I don't think I am. I don't know that I had any hint of what was going on with him specifically of the two rivers, teens each experiencing their thing until this set of chapters. I don't know that I saw any, all that much foreshadowing necessarily, unless I missed it. I guess there was the axe and the way that he was behaving with the axe, um, but that was about, there's nothing like, that that clued me in in advance. I think that it was oh, oh interesting. Wolf Brothers. That's that's a that's a turn for the story to take. I think it's interesting that we they, they had to split up a little bit, and then we learned a bit more about each each of them in in their uh, new settings. And then when they come back together, I think that will be a, a maybe an interesting or a slightly new dynamic. They all have these uh, kind of different aspects going on now. A lot, a lot has changed for all the characters mm. since they took off on their journey. And when they come back into their little Two Rivers pack, which I hope they will, um, yeah, it will be cool to see them, uh, these slightly new versions of themselves back together. So I guess we'll find out next time then when we are reading chapters 26 to 30, if you're reading along, where in which our protagonist paths, I think will continue to diverge out into the wider world for maybe a little longer, at least for the for a couple of chapters coming up, maybe before we get that rejoining of their paths again. So we'll find out next time and hope you join us. 
This episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me at twitter.com slash Caleb Wimble. Katie, where can people find you? You can find me at katiejarvis.com or on Instagram at 30 in LA. Keely, where can people find you? On Twitter or Instagram at Keely underscore. Remember, you can find us all at wattcast.net. Uh, you can find Dan's information there as well. He is on Twitter at PansyDan, spelled with a Z. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast. Support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. You are supporting even by listening, and that support means a lot. If you support us for $2 a month at the Two Rivers tier, that helps us keep doing this. And if you join us at the $5 Tarvalon tier, you'll get access to special bonusodes once those are recorded. You can also support us by leaving Wattcast a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your podcast platform of choice. It doesn't cost you anything. It helps a lot. It's the number two way we can find new listeners. The number one way is to tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but it is an ending. Farewell. I'm still going to complain about it. It fucking sucks yeah. and it's expensive, but it's worse when you're an adult too. Like it, it hurts more. Right. And cause yeah. And that's, it's right. like, they apologize to me all the time. It's like they've apologized <laughs> already for what I'm going to experience. <laughs> and then while she's like fucking around with my mouth, she's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And like at different points, she was like, okay, you haven't taken a breath in a while. I need you to breathe. <laughs> like, sorry, it fucking hurts. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh.